It is Wednesday. Thanks so much for making us a part of your day. On the show this afternoon, we're going to look at whether or not we can revamp Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. We've got a trial going on right now, which shows an ugly side of it, where you have the death of an inmate. And all of the questions as to why, what could have been done, why did this take place? The stories saying that a beating went on for roughly an hour. So what is lacking? We've heard all kinds of things about different areas that maybe need cameras and don't have them, areas that were supposed to be one thing, and now because of the volume of inmates, they are other things. There are all kinds of items to look at. So we're going to examine that in about a half hour from now. We heard yesterday from the Ontario government that they want to review regional governments and municipalities. In other words, maybe they want to do what they did in Toronto. Maybe we see more amalgamation, not just a cut of council members, but maybe we try and make things bigger again. Ask Byron. How's everybody in Byron doing? Remember when you became part of London? Yeah, it wasn't too long ago, but it changed tax structures. Absolutely. And there are people who were not happy then and probably still aren't happy now. So do we see more of that? Does London try and annex? I don't even know what. What would be next? Ingersoll, you want to become part of London? Is that what we're looking at? I don't know. But we are going to talk with a mayor who has been through this before. And we'll look at the challenges that exist and how the word cooperation factors in. Remember when we learned cooperation? Used to be a big word on Sesame Street. All of us got nice little five-minute snips of cooperation. This is how it works. And then you have to remember how to do it when you get older. And then you have to remember it. When you get into government and see if you can make it work. So we'll talk with Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley in about an hour from now. There is a top 10 list that you absolutely do not want to be on. And it's not David Letterman's top 10 worst names in North America. He would have made worst names in America. It's nothing like that. But it's a top 10 list you don't want to be on at all. And guess what? London is not on it. Hey! So what's the list? The list is the top 10 cities in Canada who are having problems with bed bugs. And London's not on it. Yay! That's good. You know what's bad for us? We leave London sometimes. Almost a guarantee you're not going to spend many nights in a hotel in London because you already have a bed here. So where do you not want to go. We'll discuss that a little later on on the show. Hamilton's number seven. I don't hear any cheering. Hamilton, are you not excited about this? You shouldn't be excited about this. Bed bugs are bad. And it was right around this time yesterday that we were talking about the Van Allen radiation belt, courtesy of Robbie. And I've talked to a number of astronomers since then. Okay, four. I've talked to four astronomers since then. And although I don't 
know that any will be able to join us on the show today. We'll eventually discuss this to a greater degree. But they've helped me to piece together what the Van Allen radiation belt is. See, yesterday we opened the show talking about China claiming that they had grown some sort of weed that is in the family of mustard and cabbage on the moon. Now, I don't think it's plugged into lunar soil here. I just They've grown it there. It's grown while it's there. Who knows? I don't know the details of all of this. But Robbie called in and said, you know what? We've never even been to the moon. You couldn't get through the Van Allen radiation belt. And so I thought, well, that prompts us to go looking and finding somebody who can discuss Van Allen radiation belts with us. So I do have information sent in from two of the four astronomers that I've spoken to in the last couple of days. And again, we'll do something a little later on, uh, but we probably won't interview about it today, but I'll at least give you the details at some point during the show. Instead of space travel, why don't we travel a little closer to home? Why don't we talk about some of the transportation that goes on On the earth, with tires on the ground. This is something that, of course, has come up because of the tragedy that took place in Ottawa that cost three people their lives. When an OC Transpo bus pulled toward a bus shelter, it was a double-decker bus. The bus shelter was not high enough, and the top of the bus was sheared off. Three dead, many injured, and a lot of questions that will be answered after a long investigation. But one of the things that we talked about on Monday was the fact that you don't have a lot of checks and balances when it comes to public transportation, at least not on a national level. Take a look at buses right now. If you take a a bus and you go to Toronto, where hopefully there aren't a lot of bed bugs, if you go to Hamilton to roll the dice on bed bugs, you know what? You're not going to be forced to wear a seatbelt. And there are other things we've got to look at as well. Neil Arison is very passionate about road safety. He's the author of No Accident. He has worked at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, and we're pretty lucky to have him on London Live right now. Neil, great to talk with you. How are things? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. What basically caused you to become as passionate as you are about road safety? Um, well, when I started to, uh, in the field of uh, road safety, started to look around at uh, what was happening in other countries, quite frankly, and um, I found out that, uh, you know, other best performing countries like Europe, in Europe, for example, have about half the amount of uh, trauma to people that countries like Canada have. And I thought, what a tragedy that uh, there's that's such a gap. That's like a thousand lives a year lost. Uh, needlessly, and many countries are moving towards Vision Zero, eliminating in, uh, death and serious injury from road travel. And in looking at how we differ from countries who are doing it better, are there any kind of blatant things to point to that maybe we're missing the boat on? Yes, there are. I mean, I'd say two things. Uh, one is the priority that we give road safety. It's just not commensurate with the size of the problem and the scale of available solutions. Uh, and, you know, it's it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about the number of people that lose their lives and are injured. And it, We wouldn't accept it if it was um, from air travel or marine uh, travel, um, but we, we accept it when it comes to road travel. Um, and then the second thing is where countries have made road safety a priority, they adopt the safe system thinking, the safe system approach, which is the leading thinking in the world. 
And in, in, uh, um, quite simply, what it means uh, is that, like in North America, we often look at human wrongdoing. But the safe system approach really means strong measures for drivers, but strong measures for the way we design vehicles and the standards, the way we design roads and its standards, and the way we set and manage speeds. And we do this through um, all, you know, strong actions in all of those areas, uh, not just uh, driver behavior, for example. We're talking with Neil Arison on London Live, author of No Accident, Eliminating Injury and Death on Canadian Roads. And right away, Neil has taken a look at Canada versus other parts of the world and some of the things that aren't going right. So where do we kind of lay the responsibility on all of this if we're not doing what we need to be doing to ensure greater road safety and, and we're winding up with double the deaths? What do we need to do? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, um, citizens calling on governments to uh, to make road safety a priority uh, would be one thing. And I think that, uh, for example, with the uh, double-decker, the tragic uh, crash in Ottawa, uh, perhaps it can be a prod for action. Um, you know, uh, many people have been calling for a, uh, an investigation by the Transportation Safety Board, for example, um, and they're far more equipped, I think, um, to actually do the kind of investigation that we're talking about in terms of like looking at all the multiple factors. Uh, when you look at their investigation they did of the 2013 uh, double-decker crash, um, you know, they had 50 findings, a 246-page report with 50 findings, and those findings were kind of across the, uh, the safe system approach that I was talking about. So we could use that um, to uh, try and improve the system so that crash injuries and deaths happen to fewer people uh, uh, as a result. Neil, one of the things that you point to in the book is that we're not going to eliminate injury and death from land-based transportation. That's, that's not a thing right now. But in looking at a safe system approach, what would be some of the things that could be done? Because in London, we're looking at, at different ways to use our transportation in the future and, and what to do. So what would we need to do to engineer things and make them safer? Mm-hmm. Well, just on that first point, I'm not sure... Um you know, uh, I think when we look at limit, uh, the possibility of Vision Zero, eliminating eliminating death and serious, it's not possible to eliminate crashes, and it's not even possible, I don't think, to eliminate all injuries. But um, eliminating serious injuries and deaths, I think, could be realistic over the long term. Um, uh, you know, again, it's a, it really, when we think about it, it's a human-made system. And it has human-made solutions. We humans design the system. We can design it any way we want. And when you think about our accomplishments over the last 100 years, uh, we sent a man to the moon almost 50 years ago, uh, 50 years ago this fall or summer. So, you know, why couldn't we design the system? Uh, We certainly could. But we do need to take serious uh, look at, you know, um, things like speeds and things like crashworthiness of of, uh, vehicles. So we're making good headway in terms of cars, but there's an enormous gap in terms of buses. Uh, We don't really have uh, hardly any standards for the crashworthiness of buses. So, for example, you know, uh, whatever, drivers will probably make errors for a long time to come, including bus drivers, but when those errors happen, what will happen uh, in terms of... um, the potential for injury. So we, you know, looking at uh, crashworthiness standards for buses, I think would be would be huge. We know that the TSB called for that as a result of their uh, 2013 investigation, and uh, we're still waiting for those, some crash standards to be developed. Isn't that wild? I mean, 
you're a guy who, as we mentioned off the start, is passionate about road safety. You talk about recommendations that were made in 2013. These were not made in 1983. We're six years later, and still nothing has been done. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, when you look at the history of um, of road safety, I mean, uh, um, a cadet, a Canadian, uh, Hugh DeHaven, um, crashed. He was training in over Texas and crashed his plane, uh, or there was a plane crash, and he was the lone survivor of the two. Uh, the two planes crashed, and the other three died. And he got to thinking about crash worthiness, um, and he published papers in the 1940s. And in, in the early 1950s, and they laid down the principles of crash worthiness that we still apply today. So, in other words, we've known about crash worthiness for a long time. Uh, you know, about 70 years um, is very simple. We apply it to cars, um, and 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 uh, you know, cars are safer because of the standards. They're also safer because of the uh, the crash testing that goes on. You know, through the National Highway Tra- Safety Traffic uh, Administration and the uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety in the U.S., so we all want to buy five-star cars. And those crash rating programs um, have done a lot of good in terms of making our cars safer. Um, If We don't really do that to buses. Uh, If we were to crash test buses, they would probably be zero stars. They would be that low? Absolutely. And and we were talking with Graham Larkin from Vision Zero on Monday, and he had highlighted buses as well. Is it an easy fix for buses? Is it a, a complicated fix, and that's why nobody's doing it? Well, how do you see it? Well, they do have better standards in Europe around uh, crashworthiness, um, and in many other countries, actually. Um, um, I mean, overall, there's fewer fatalities, so there, I guess there's uh, different considerations, but... Um, uh, you know, we do have deaths, we do have injuries, and if we're looking at making the system safe, we would, you know, in the air industry, they don't, uh, they don't, they don't concern themselves with, you know, cost-benefit analysis and the kinds of things that we do around road safety. They just make air travel safe, and they do whatever is required. So, if we insisted on the same kind of standard for buses, uh, there's clearly more we could do. We know that. We know that from. Uh, history of uh, studying road safety. We know it from the TSB recommendations, and we know it from looking around the world at what other countries are doing. And yet, nobody's jumping on board and getting this done. Doesn't seem so. It doesn't seem certainly not fast enough. Hmm. Well, Neil, I appreciate everything that that you have told us today, and thank you so much for your time. Best of luck in continuing your passion for road safety, and hopefully someday we can talk again and you can say, remember when we were talking? Here's what they've done since then, because it doesn't sound like there's been a lot of since then, especially when it comes to buses. Yes, absolutely. That would be great if that that development occurred. It would make so many people happy. Neil, have a great day. Thank you. You too. That is Neil Harrison. He is the author of No Accident, so you can check that out, Eliminating Injury and Death on Canadian Roads. And he does look at the crash worthiness of vehicles because, as Neil pointed out, and it makes sense, we're all going to make mistakes. The more you're on the road, the more mistakes you're going to make. You're going to become a better driver, but you're still going to make mistakes. It happens. And with that comes crashes. Now, take a look at vehicles. I mean, it, it is true. Neil talks about some of the innovations in cars. You can't buy a car these days that doesn't have some kind of backup camera in it and some kind of sensor. Now, that's new. If you buy an older vehicle, obviously, you may not have it, but you can certainly have one installed. It does make a big difference. 
Now, I think sometimes we probably rely on that technology a little bit too much. And, you know, you still have to do the old 360 check before you hit that thing into reverse. But it helps. And those sensors help. And then you look at some of the other sensors that have been built into vehicles. And yet, buses remain people movers. You don't need seatbelts. We continue to have that debate. And yet it goes nowhere because... What? Because we're concerned over whether school kids are going to need to be buckled in, and then immediately there are concerns over liability. And honestly, I think that liability in terms of seatbelts on buses, that's what gets in the way. Right there, that is a huge deal, whether it's for a bus company, whether it is for a city that manages public transportation using buses, whether it is for a school bus company, it comes down to liability. Because if there are belts and they are mandated that you wear them and you're driving around and somebody takes them off and then there's a crash and that somebody gets injured, you know it's going to come back to the owner. You know it's going to come back to the city. You know it's not going to be that individual who gets blamed, even though it should be. In cars, what do they do now when you don't buckle up? Ding, 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 ding. And it does that until you buckle up because it's annoying. And it doesn't take long for that to start, and that's a good thing. You don't want to drive around with the dinging. Put your seatbelt on. But the liability that would exist in terms of public transportation, and yet... It's something that we really have to get through. It really is. Because as Neil points out, and this is not just buses or school buses, but we do have double the deaths. The number this that Graham Larkin quoted were 2,000 deaths, 160,000 injuries a year in road crashes in Canada. These are massive numbers. Why are we allowing that year after year after year? That becomes a big question. Let's take a break. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Oh, I'm excited now. Just got an email from Max King from U of T. Mike, I've had a cancellation. If you still want to talk about the Van Allen radiation belt, I would be happy to do so. Nice. So that's what we're going to do. Not right away. We have some other things that we're going to get to between now and doing that. That will happen in a little over a half hour or 40 minutes from now. But we will get to the Van Allen radiation belt. Yesterday at this time, we were wearing tinfoil hats. We were talking conspiracy theories about whether man had ever been to the moon or humans had ever been to the moon or whether probes had been sent to Mars. And the Van Allen radiation belt was the thing that was apparently in the way. In some of the literature that the astronomers that we've spoken with have sent along, there is a Van Allen radiation belt. Yeah, it exists. But it was the trajectory that they used and the speed that they went at that apparently helped them to get through. That's all I've seen from the literature. We'll be able to talk with Max King from U of T in less than an hour from now, and we'll get all we need to know about the Van Allen radiation belt. In about 10 minutes... Following Jacqueline LaBelle and news, we're going to be talking with Dr. Matthew Yeager from the Department of Sociology at King's University College. And we're going to be looking at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. It has been far too long. Maybe this will be a topic today. 
It's been far too long that we've been dealing with crashes on roadways, tragedies that involve buses, but nothing gets done. Nothing changes. Recommendations are made. Nothing really is carried out. Nobody can explain why. Well, doesn't that also apply to the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center? Yeah, conditions are bad. Yeah, we have tragedies. Yeah, people die. And nothing changes. How could we fix it? How could we improve it? Is there even an answer? That's what we'll be talking about with Dr. Yeager in 10 minutes. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Still to come on London Live today, London did not crack the top 10 in places where bedbugs run rampant. That should be a celebration. Except for us. Anybody who spends a lot of time in London, who also has a home either in London or pretty nearby, not likely to stay in hotels with bedbugs. But when you travel elsewhere... You may run into one or two. We'll tell you what the list is, and then we'll tell you how to watch out for them. We'll also talk with Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley because the provincial government has said the words, reviewing regional governments and municipalities, make some changes, hack and whack, cut and slash, we don't know, changes, and it will be in the interest of saving money. So what do you have to watch out for? I mean, when we've seen other amalgamations, sometimes... Services are lost. So life that used to be fantastic in this smaller municipality now gets gobbled up by this big municipality and all of a sudden things just aren't as good as they used to be. We've seen that before in the interest of what? Saving money. Absolutely. So is it happening again? Can it happen again? How would they go about doing it? We'll talk with someone who has a great eye on politics and someone who's been through it before as the head of a municipality. That comes up in about 40 minutes from now. We'll also talk about the Van Allen radiation belt. Here's something that I do not understand. Let me just kind of read this release that has come in. A 43-year-old man has been caught trying to smuggle a snake onto a plane that was set to go from Berlin to someplace in Israel. I'm not exactly sure where he was headed, but this was a 15-inch boa constrictor. So that's not a massive boa constrictor. It is like a little over a foot. So when you see headlines that say, well, a man caught with boa constrictor in his pants, how would he do that? But at the same time, How exactly do you even attempt to do this? And here's the weird part about it. He made it onto the plane. He got onto the plane before somebody said there's something going wrong with that guy. Something's not right with that guy or his pants. Uh, You might want to look at him. So they did, and they found inside a bag tied with a cord, because that'll keep the snake inside the bag. Just a, a nice... Nice, uh, what, what kind of knot could we use? Reef knot, would that work? Sure. Snake found in bag. He made it onto the plane. We have to take off our shoes and our belts and turn over everything. You have to take your laptop out of its case and put it down. This guy wanders through with a snake in a bag in his pants, and nobody says anything. That I don't get. 
Let's take a break. Up next, here's another thing I don't get. Why we haven't seen changes to the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. We've been hearing about issues for so long. Why? And what could be done to make it better? We'll investigate both of those things with the help of Dr. Matthew Yeager from the Department of Sociology at King's University College. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. In 2013, Adam Cargus was at Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, and he was murdered. And wrapping up late Monday, we had proceedings to select a jury for a trial of two former Elgin Middlesex Detention Center staffers. So this has been in the news a lot lately. But Elgin Middlesex Detention Center has been in the news a lot, period. And we know that there are issues, we hear about overcrowding, we hear about other problems, and yet we never really hear the, hey, guess what? Hey, some good news! We don't hear that when it comes to Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. What exactly can we do? How should we feel about this? Joining us right now is Dr. Matthew Yeager, who is in the Department of Sociology at King's University College. Dr. Yeager, thanks so much for taking some time out for us. Well, I'm delighted. Dr. Yeager, when we talk about Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, every time we hear about it, it's usually because something negative is taking place. Where would you begin in looking at Elgin Middlesex Detention Center to try to change that? Well, I'm, I'm going to focus on something that uh, we don't talk about enough, uh, which is uh, the local court system and, uh, and, and the, the importance of tariffs. Now, Mike, a tariff in the criminal side in the court system is a, uh, an, an understood uh, remedy or sanction or sentence. That tariff is based on history, it's based on custom, it's based on uh, case law, it's based on uh, uh, the machinations of, uh, of the Crown uh, Prosecutor's Office, uh, as well as uh, uh, a couple judges. And, and the problem that you have, particularly in London, is you have uh, very few uh, individuals or agencies or uh, uh, lawyers challenging uh, the tariff system, because it is the tariff system that determines uh, how many people are going to be at the Elgin, uh, uh, you know, detention facility, and how many people are going to be uh, sentenced to uh, imprisonment in the federal system. And until, and until we begin to uh, to look at that tariff system and challenge it. Uh, we're going to have uh, extreme overcrowding at Elgin with a lot of uh, people on remand who haven't even been convicted yet of anything. So what do you do? Well, there is a, uh, a well-known solution that has been underfunded um, and needs to uh, be, uh, uh, you know, needs to be looked at very, very carefully. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada Mike, issued an opinion in Gladue, G-L-A-D-U-E. It was an aboriginal case involving a uh, young woman, and uh, there was an issue of uh, over-incarceration of First Nations peoples, and there still is, um, in, in Canada, across the country, but particularly in the prairies. 
And the Gladue decision stands for the proposition that uh, people who are First Nations are entitled to be looked at with respect to alternatives to uh, the tariff system. Um, and, uh, and here's the interesting thing, that they may be entitled to a Gladue report. Now, you're going to ask, what the heck is a Gladue report? I was going to ask that. Yeah, well, it's a good question. A Gladue report is a separate report, not necessarily prepared by the probation department, a separate report on the the individual, the First Nations individual, their background, uh, their native background, the issues, and with respect to community possibilities, community penalties that the court could consider. My argument to your listeners, Mike, is that the Gladue report has to be extended, that it should be presented in all cases in the criminal courts where there is the issue of prison time being used, whether it's for bail or whether it's for sentence. And the Gladue report should be available both to natives and non-natives facing a penitentiary and jail time because in my humble opinion, that's the only way you're going to be able to reduce the population levels at Elgin and bring it to a level where management can uh, do their job and keep things under control. Uh, right now, they're not able to do that. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I, I imagine your listeners who are all taxpayers ought to be alarmed because uh, these cases going through these damage awards are, are becoming quite high with respect to uh, the cost of incarceration, where we're not only paying for staff and operating expenses, we're having to pay for lawsuits <laughs> uh, with respect to our illustrious local, uh, local bucket or lockup. We're talking with Dr. Matthew Yeager from the Department of Sociology at King's University College, and I want to maybe rewind back to the tariff issue and address that for a minute. Why does that system even exist in the first place? What does it, it help with? It is a, uh, a it, it it has to do with the fact, Mike, that uh, most of the cases uh, in the criminal courts are pled out. About ninety, almost ninety percent of the cases are pled out with guilty pleas. And the tariff system is designed to maintain that, that system where uh, if you do me a favor, I'll do you a favor on the next case. Uh, don't challenge the underlying tariff system again. Don't, don't uh, say that we're over-incarcerating people. Don't put forward a community penalties plan. I mean, I've had experience in the local courts here in London where uh, uh, a plan that I put forward uh, with respect to uh, uh, community penalties was not even submitted to the court <laughs> because the, the, the council and the crown objected to it. Okay. And so when you do that, when you have uh, a system being run by, by a tariff system over a long time, we're talking uh, many, many years, you know, it's what is contributing to the bail problem. It's what's contributing to over-incarceration. It's what's contributing to a, uh, a lack of using community penalties and resources and designing other sentences. And so what you end up doing is putting all your marbles, that is your money, into a local lockup and, and or beating your chest and saying that the local lockup at Elgin 
uh, Middlesex needs more money. Let's just give him more money. Or we'll build another one. <laughs> All of that is, is a huge, in my humble opinion, a huge failure. But I realize that there are probably some of your listeners who think I'm a little... A little off my rocker. Not at all, because <laughs> we're we're at a loss right now. Anything else that's been discussed has either not come to fruition or has not really worked. And obviously, the overcrowding how how much of an issue would that provide in your mind in terms of just the if we could eliminate overcrowding, would this thing work better? Way way better. If you could reduce the reliance on on the detention facility, both with bail and short sentences uh, and and uh, uh, other regular sentences, you're going to do a great service uh, to the citizens of uh, of, uh, of London and the outskirts of London. Because uh, what you're going to do uh, is you're going to be just as effective with those convicts out in the community as you would had you sentenced them to jail time. And what you open up, what you allow to open up is the possibility of improving uh, your community penalties in terms of your uh, interventions that you're going to use for people. Uh, We know that uh, uh, there's a huge, huge uh, drug population at Elgin Middlesex. At least over half of that population have uh, acute addiction histories. And I'm talking early onset alcohol early onset uh, uh, methamphetamine, uh, the use of uh, narcotics and heroin, uh, people who are injecting. And um, we can't just continue to rely on a jail uh, to address public health issues. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, uh, the only facility that's that's readily available for everybody is the jail. (laughs) (laughs) And so, hey, it's, it's, it's almost a comedy routine. I mean, if we can get into numbers, so you know, you're talking um, some serious dollars per per a year. I mean, remember at the federal level, it costs about 139 grand a year to keep an inmate in penitentiary. Well, for that amount of money, I can send, uh, uh, I can have at least 10 students sent to Kings. Isn't that wild when you put it into that kind of perspective? Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, in the end, then. You believe this needs to begin at the court system, and uh, right now I don't know that there's a movement to do that. No, I what do you it, think? I think it begins with Gladue. It begins by focusing in on Gladue, focusing in on those Gladue reports, and inaugurating a policy that anybody uh, in lockup and anybody facing major jail time is entitled to a Gladue report, and that that report has to consider community penalties. That is the beginning of breaking up the tariff system or challenging it. Dr. Yeager, thank you so much for your thoughts, because this is something that I don't think any of us have heard before, and I love hearing things like that. Well, you know, they pay us uh, to be professors and to profess. Sometimes (laughs) I succeed and sometimes I don't. Well, you certainly succeeded today. All the best this afternoon. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Matthew Yeager. That's somebody I think is going to hopefully make a return appearance to London Live. I love it when somebody can come up with a new idea instead of just saying, well, we've got to cut down on the overcrowding. Okay. Yeah. That's like saying, well, the bottom of my vehicle is rusting. I'm going to have to buy a new one very soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of an obvious thing. My sock has a hole in it. I should probably throw that in the garbage or darn it.
Anybody know how to darn socks anymore? Remember, they used to be the thing that looked kind of like a foot that you had to shove into it in order to sew it properly, or else you'd kind of get it all crunched at the front. Yeah, that's the obvious. So how do you fix it? Well, at least Dr. Yeager is suggesting, look, we're going to look at more community avenues. Absolutely. And you've got to look at some of the issues that exist in there. It is its own society in many ways, and that's a danger. So what do you do with this? How do you fix it? Well, maybe somebody steps up and says, yeah, we've got we've to take that recommendation and see how it would play out. 519-643-2222. We've got a couple of quick minutes if you want to weigh in and let us know how you feel about this. 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. If you're out of town, 1-866-354-8255. Bob, your thoughts? Yeah, Mike, how are you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, you know, that was uh, actually one of the most sensical things I've heard uh, when Dr. Ego was speaking. You really got to address the problem. And what it did, it was kind of triggered a memory in my mind. I don't know, about a couple of years ago, I was watching this documentary. And I believe it was out of the Netherlands and how they uh, revised their whole prison system and how they approached, uh, you know, criminals that were doing time. What they would do is they, they set this island up off the mainland and they actually set it up as houses. And so all these inmates would live in houses and they had to work together to achieve a goal every day, cook supper and everything, right? And then every day, they would ship them on a boat onto the mainland, and at first they'd be supervised, and they'd go to these jobs. So after so many years, and a lot of these guys, everything under the sun, the crimes they committed, right? And after a certain amount of time, they would be totally rehabilitated. And uh, the the success rate, I believe, was like over 95%. Where when the people were released back into society, they actually fit in. They understood, understood how they had to conduct themselves, and it was a fascinating and revealing uh, documentary on if you approach it properly, that uh, people just need to be kind of you know, uh, you know, directed uh, on how to you know. And but it has to be done a, a certain way. Sure. Now you know? that's, that's exactly right. You're going back to where does this problem originate? And what do we do? Now, a lot of people would need a lot of help in finding that out, but rehabilitation is possible, and it's something that needs to be done properly in order for it to be effective. I just love different ways. Bob, we got to run for news. Thanks for yep. the call. You betcha. We do have news coming up. We'll also let you know what else is on the way on London Live. Everything from Van Allen radiation belt to amalgamation to how to avoid bed bugs. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Uh oh. Better go to globalnews.ca or 980cfpl.ca and check out the story that says Polar Vortex splits into three, setting up Ontario and Quebec for minus 30 degrees Celsius and a weekend storm. Last time apparently this happened was 2015 when a polar vortex set in around the Great Lakes and we had one of the coldest Februaries on record in this area. I think that was the year that a guy tried to run the really chilly road race in February in just shorts. He came back, and he was as red as a stop sign. Never, never. No, no. We'll take a break. Up next, we will talk with Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley about reviewing regional governments and municipalities, and we'll also 
grab your tinfoil hat, talk about whether or not we can make it through the Van Allen radiation belt. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you missed the show yesterday, not a problem. We're here each and every day between 1 and 3 on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. And if you can't hear it at that point, we do provide a podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite shows. You can subscribe and you can listen to it later on in the day. Hopefully what we're talking about is still pertinent. Most of it should be. It's not like we're giving partial scores of games. Everything should be fairly pertinent. I want to thank Dr. Matthew Yeager for all of his help in presenting a new idea for the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. And it involved the courts. If you missed that, then please check out the podcast when it goes up later on today. Because he had some great ideas. Yesterday, if you missed the show, again, never a problem. You would have missed a call from Robbie. And we had been talking about China going to the far side of the moon. And then yesterday they announced that there was a sprout on the moon of a mustard slash cabbage plant of some kind. And immediately Robbie called up and he said, no, 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 no. Stop believing all this stuff. Anything that goes into the Van Allen radiation belt is rendered useless. So he immediately said, no, he does not believe in the moon landing. He doesn't believe there are probes on Mars. He doesn't believe we've flown anything into Saturn. Doesn't believe the Pluto stuff because you can't get out through the Van Allen radiation belt. I didn't know much about the Van Allen radiation belt. Is this just a, a strip of space somewhere? So we started looking into it. No, it surrounds the entire Earth. Is it a serious thing? Yeah, if you look at all the Apollo missions, they definitely talked about it. So is there a concern that some of the conspiracy theories stating that humans haven't been to the moon and stop believing what you're reading, is there some truth to them? Well, maybe we get a chance to look at the Van Allen radiation belt from somebody who understands a whole lot about it. Joining us right now, and we thank him for doing this because he's taking time out of a busy day in order to make it happen, so we appreciate that. Please welcome to London Live a man who comes from U of T, Max King. Professor King, how are things? Hey, Mike. Uh, things are great. How about you? Not too bad. You can maybe take us through, a, if we were to draw a picture of the Van Allen radiation belt, what would it look like? So uh, the first picture that might come to mind is a, is a sphere around the Earth, and that's not quite right. It's more like if the Earth was a face, the Van Allen belts are these really big earlobes coming off the Earth. <laughs> Okay, and is there a way to go anywhere on the Earth where you could kind of miss them and take off and go zoom out into space and not not enter into the Van Allen radiation belt? So you'd have to pass through some part of it at some point, but uh, in the specific case of the Apollo program, they kind of came out of what you can sort of think of at one of the poles of the Earth where you don't have to pass through very much. Now, that was a, a calculated decision. There were some uh, disadvantages to doing that, but the serious advantages are you don't have to pass through as much of the Van Allen radiation belt. 
Now, there is writing on the internet. There are videos on the internet. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. But <laughs> in terms of what is out there, there is some suggestion that the Van Allen radiation belt would render anything you tossed into it pretty useless. What is this area like? So if you were, if you were somehow to just transport yourself into the Van Allen radiation belt with no spacecraft, no spacesuit or anything, it would be a very dangerous position for you to be in. It would be a very harmful environment to humans and electronic devices. So you would suffer a severe amount of radiation exposure, but we don't have things just floating out there without any shielding or any surrounding or any casing to them. So a lot of the numbers that you see kind of get floated around uh, say, oh, it'd be an exposure thousands of times beyond lethal levels. But these don't take into account having a spacesuit on or a, or a metal case around you, an aluminum spacecraft, which would absorb so much of that radiation. So if we're to take the proper precautions, it is possible to get through the Van Allen radiation belt and see the other side? It is, and we have spacecraft in space that are kind of positioned. We don't position spacecraft and satellites in the Van Allen radiation belts. We kind of try and get them through that as soon as possible. So GPS satellites, the things that allow you to have Google Maps on your phone, uh, have, are positioned on the outskirts of the outer Van, outer, uh, Van Allen radiation belts. We're talking? Things like, oh, sorry, go ahead. And uh, uh, the space station... Uh, where astronauts are, the current uh, Canadian astronaut, David Saint-Jacques, uh, they're on the inside of the Van Allen radiation belt. They're not yet inside of it. So, Okay. We're talking with Max King from the University of Toronto. Do we know why the Van Allen radiation belt is there in the first place? Um, uh, uh, we'll use a, a generous we. Uh, I couldn't be the best person to describe it, but it has to do with the influences of charged particles that come out of the sun and radiation from the sun and interactions with the Earth's magnetic field. And the Van Allen radiation belt kind of lies in areas where there's a lot of magnetic activity from the Earth's field, is my understanding of it. Okay. But in other words, it is possible to get through it. You're, we did see the Apollo crews come through it. And I, there was concern, I'm sure, for them going up the first time, wouldn't there have been? There was concern then. There's concern now about going through it. But this is just one of the many challenges that uh, engineers face when they plan space programs. <laughs> and that's really exciting. Because somebody described it as being kind of small on the list of risks. It's certainly not the riskiest thing they did. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to seeing what humankind can do going forward, but uh, Professor King, we really appreciate you taking some time to describe this for us today. If we were to ask you, what is your favorite part about space? Uh, I was always fascinated by the moon program growing up, and then now what I'm most looking forward to is the deep space gateway. That should get some callers on the line. That's NASA's New return to get us back to the moon. Okay, hang on. Deep Space Gateway. I like that. Deep Space Gateway. Yeah. But it's simply a lunar program? It's a lunar program with the ultimate vision of getting us to Mars. Okay. But we've got to get to the moon again first. Yeah. Okay. All right. Did you ever have any any thoughts of being one of those people who went to the moon one day? Oh, that would be pretty exciting. But I don't think I'd make the cut, but... 
love to try one day. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you chatting with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Mike. Have a great day. Take care. That is Professor Max King from the University of Toronto. So, yes, it exists. No, you wouldn't want to be in the Van Allen radiation belt all by yourself. Yes, it is possible to get through it. Yes, there is shielding. And on the long list of things that can go wrong in space, it would be down that list quite a ways. Deep Space Gateway. I think we have Andrew Graham is producing the show today, and he says we have a lunar eclipse coming up on Sunday. Lunar eclipse on Sunday. You're not supposed to look at those, remember. You're definitely not supposed to look at a solar eclipse either. Although, yeah, no, don't look at an eclipse, right? I don't want to give out bad information here. See, I always forget. There's one that you can kind of. There are others you have to use a cardboard box. I would say just play it safe. Just don't look at an eclipse, period. We've got enough stuff that can cause problems for us on this old earth. We have something that could be causing issues for local government. And it was introduced yesterday by the Ontario government, because what they're interested in doing is reviewing regional governments and municipalities. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. It actually isn't. It's not bad. Anybody should be under review at any time. Should they not? It's a little stressful sometimes, but... Even if we did the, uh, every once in a while, we should do some checks and balances. Sure. Sure we should. So in this case, what could that mean? Well, we know that Ontario is not rife with cash. We know that the Doug Ford government has wanted to come in and make some changes and make things run as well as they possibly can. I don't begrudge them for that. I'm actually encouraged by that. So when they review regional governments and municipalities, they're looking for ways to streamline. And we've seen that happen in the past. We've seen amalgamations that haven't gone over all that well. See Byron, although Byron is still part of London. It hasn't fallen off the side of the city. We haven't seen pitchfork-laden protests over the years. So it's just happened. We did see taxes change. We did see some services change. But overall, if you're to look at reviewing regional governments and municipalities, maybe looking at ways to streamline, let's talk with someone who has been through it. We'll do that next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We never like things to stay completely the same. You always want to take a look every once in a while, see how everything's operating. Well, looks like that's what's going to take place in government and, more importantly, in regional governments and municipalities. So we already have certain centers that have joined with other centers if we go into the past far enough. What exactly does this mean? Well, we're not quite sure yet, but there will be a review by the provincial government. And it could lead to any number of things. Could we see more amalgamations? I don't think it's off the table. If that's the case, let's talk with someone who has been through a couple of reforms of regional government. Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley joins us from his office in Sarnia, where they had the sunshine earlier in the the day. We're kind of getting glimpses of it, along with snowfall. How do we get that? Right now in downtown London, no joke, it is sunny and snowing in downtown London. 
Mike is able to look over the river, the beautiful blue water, and Mike, it is great to talk with you. We've heard the province say those words, reviewing regional governments and municipalities. When you hear that, how do those words make you feel? Well, I've been through this before. Uh, I went through an amalgamation as mayor of the city of Sarnia in 1998 with the town of Clearwater beside us, and we rejoined the county of Lambton after 77 years of being absent from that group. And that was a massive restructuring in this area. Then later in the 90s, we went through uh, Mike Harris and uh, his revolution that uh, brought about uh, further restructurings here, there, and everywhere, including some of the largest cities. And then recently, we also went through the uh, the, uh, the Toronto downsizing of the council. So I've seen the movie before. I believe the outcome will be the same, that there is massive change coming to local government uh, in Ontario. And I should say that I've never been fearful of change. I'm not fearful of reinventing government. I think that's what elected people need to do every day. Any elected person at the local level that says everything is fine and we don't need to change shouldn't be in office. Okay, because things are always changing. But when we go through changes like you did, obviously the goal is to cut some costs. The concern is that with the cut of those costs comes a cut of services or a cut of something that somebody is going to really miss. Well, that's true, Mike. I mean, back going to the Mike Harris era, that uh, we're still dealing with the ramifications of what they did with social housing and uh, some of the other programs, ambulance services they uh, transferred to the municipalities, but well, the money to support them, and that's been an ongoing issue for us. I've also learned, though, that when people hear people whining about that at the municipal level, that's what they consider it's whining, just get on and do with your job. Uh, I can adapt to the changes that come. Uh, I'm concerned it's going to be such a massive change. It's not going to be very orderly in Ontario, but it was pretty obvious with the Toronto downsizing of the council, that that didn't matter to this government. And again, I welcome the opportunity to uh, see changes in how we deliver services. Because um, again, the status quo is never defensible. There's always ways you can do things differently. And I look here in Sarnia, what we did in the 90s and beyond, we have a marina. It's run by the private sector. The airport is run by the private sector. The arena where the sting play was run by the private sector. We were trying to find ways that others who are more competent and more have more the ability to do things at a lower cost to operate them. And in our case, it was a big success. We're talking with Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley, who has been through the review of regional governments and has been through things like amalgamation, as the Ontario government is again talking about doing the same thing. So how would you say that those became a success? What went right? Well, what went right, Mike, in the first one I talked about, the Sarnia, Clearwater, and Lambton County amalgamation back in 1991, it was locally negotiated. It was uh, tough negotiations, but it was all agreed to locally, voted on locally, and supported. When you impose an amalgamation, uh, you end up creating a lot of friction and a lot of bad feelings that can last literally for decades. That's going to be the uh, the trick for the Ford government. Uh, how much do they want to poke the stick, particularly in rural Ontario? And the one that we'll be watching, I just met with some county councillors this morning and, and talking about this, was, uh, we were meeting about other issues, but this came up naturally because it's going to be the number one topic for them for the next year or so, is Oxford County where Woodstock is. That's going to be a test case for us because we have a lot of similarities and it's a smaller type of county. So we'll be watching. Uh, and, you know, the thing is that I think it's really important is not to have fear that there's going to be changes. How can we make these changes work better for our taxpayers and our citizens? What sorts of things do you feel that different leaders in these municipalities will have to protect? Do they have to step up about policing? Do they have to step up about transit? I think, Mike, they'll be protecting their own councils. I mean, I've got some good examples in Lambton County. We have Oil Springs, 600 people. 
and has a council. They also have representation on the county council. The mayor there has one vote. I have three, and I represent 73, 74,000 people. There is a need for reform. And I think that that's what's going to be. There's going to be that very parochial. And I saw some of the comments that went in the uh, media yesterday after this was announced, this review was announced. It was very parochial, simply saying everything's fine, everything's good, we don't need this. So I think that people have to have an open mind, work with it. Uh, hope the government will understand that the best way to do this is to do it uh, in a cooperative manner. And we're going to try to that approach here. What are you trying to accomplish? Is it savings? Is it better services? Is it less politicians? When I look around Lambton County where Sarnia is, you know, there's probably 80, 100, 120 politicians for a county of 125,000. Is that needed? I would question that. We learn cooperation really early on in life. How difficult is it to execute at the government level? It's going to be very difficult for this government because there's going to be pockets of opposition. The other thing I note uh, as an observer is that uh, they're taking on so many issues. It's going to be very difficult to keep focused on what the prime ones are. I mean, you can't have 20 priorities. You've got to focus on the two or three big ones. It looks like they're moving on the healthcare sector to make changes there. That's walking into a huge minefield, plus the other issues that they're dealing with at the current time. So, I mean, that's their problem to deal with. And I would hope, and I do know the minister, Mr. Ferris, we know each other for a long time. I think he's a a thoughtful person. I think he understands the the needs of municipalities. And I hope that that's part of this. This, You know, you can't have that. I mean, it happens all the time with provincial governments. It doesn't matter which one. We're their partners when it suits their purpose. But when it doesn't and they want to impose something, we're no longer their partners. It's not, it can't be that type of uh, changes that come. has to be in a way that uh, we can work our way through it together, because we understand that there's a provincial debt of a, on a, at an extreme level. We understand what we're not allowed to deficit finance, so we understand those issues. So just work with us and not work against us. Mayor Bradley, have you been informed of any timetables, or have you seen anything come across your desk yet with reference to this, or is it just what you've heard in the news? No, but I understand that uh, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs in London's office has called all the CEOs from the region together tomorrow for a briefing. I I believe it's probably on this topic. Um, We're not in the first group, so we'll wait to see what happens with the first group and then prepare ourselves accordingly. Mayor Bradley, thank you so much for taking us through the experience you've had with this. Thank you so much, Mike. Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley. So meetings already set to get underway just to assess what this could be all about. It could amount to very little, but what do we hear? We hear that there's a lot of excess, that if you change that, you may save some dollars, and that's likely what we're going to see the provincial government go after. We are going to be going after a story about, get ready for it, bad bugs. There is a list of top 10 places in Canada that are rife with bed bugs, something you want to avoid. If you get these into your house, you basically have to call a professional. You can't just say, oh, there's one, squish. Problem solved. It doesn't work like that. These things are nasty. And because of all of the pesticides that were used on them decades ago, they kind of became pesticide resistant. You know the bugs that get afraid of raid? Yeah, they're not in that picture. That's not them. The bed bug? Doesn't matter. It'll take raid. It'll spit it right back at you. It won't actually do that. But it's not scared of a whole heck of a lot. So we'll talk about what exactly creates so many bed bug issues and certainly how to spot them before we close out the show today. And yes, we will run down the top 10 cities, not in North America, in Canada. 
London is not on the list. Hamilton is. Hamilton came in at number seven. So that and more still to come on London Live. Next up, we have news with Jacqueline LaBelle. We will hear the latest about what is happening in a story that's that's just getting scarier. We hear about different kinds of fentanyl. Now we've got blue and purple fentanyl, this latest stuff. You don't want to be in contact with any of this, but people who use drugs, they don't always have the label that says, hey, by the way, this contains a few grains of fentanyl. It's not how the drug market works. So this becomes very, very dangerous. We'll get details on that in just about one minute from now. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Do you want to know what can cost major cities somewhere around a million dollars a year? Sewers? No, no. Misspending? No. Oh, give the government officials a break. Uh, Bedbugs. Bedbugs can cost as much as a million dollars a year. If they get into, say, public housing, that's costing the city to get them out. And it doesn't really show how the effect takes hold on private industry, private corporations. We have, courtesy of Orkin Canada, the top 10 bedbug cities in Canada. The greatest news in all of this, London is not in the top 10. We always feel kind of rejected when we don't make the top 10 of things, don't we? Top sunniest cities in the world. That's not us. Not even close. It's January. We got to see the sun today. We get instances of sunshine. How many instances do you think we've had in January so far? Four? Six? Can't be more than that. And it's January the 16th, so we're not the sunniest city. We could be up there with friendliest city. Absolutely we could be. We could be up there with cleanest city. Sure. We don't want to be on the list of top 10 bedbug cities. They are as follows. You ready for this? Number 10, Scarborough which can either be its own city or can help Toronto in the number of bedbugs that it has. Scarborough, number 10. Number 9, Windsor. Number 8, uh-oh, I have to go there this weekend. Sudbury. I'm going to do my bedbug check. You can betcha. Number 7, Hamilton. Number 6, Ottawa, nation's capital. Number 5 is Halifax. A lot of these are pretty accessible. Number four, Vancouver. Number three, St. John's, Newfoundland. Number two, Winnipeg. And the number one bedbug city, according to Orkin Canada, in all of the country, Toronto, Ontario. So London, not on the list. Fantastic. But do you plan to go to Toronto at some point? Well, yeah. You know, business takes me there on this day and this. Okay. Or, yeah, I'm going to go to a concert. We're going to stay overnight. It's going to be great. You better check for bedbugs. Plan to go to Vancouver, Halifax, St. John's. All are tremendous destinations. All on the bedbugs list. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, we call on good friends of London Live. That's what we do. And Professor Mike Maris will join us in a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We didn't make the top ten, but that's a good thing in this case. London did not make the top ten 
in Canada's bedbug cities, according to Orkin Canada. Let's understand these little creatures a little bit better, because when you do hear that some municipalities are spending right around a million dollars a year dealing with bedbugs, and it's not because they're offering up money to private hotels, it's not because they are offering money to any kind of private entrepreneur, that's just kind of their ticket in all of it, that's a lot of money. So what is it? With bedbugs. Joining us right now is Fanshawe College professor Mike Maris. Mike, thanks for being with us. Mike, we have been able to talk about bedbugs before, and what we have learned is that bedbugs certainly are an issue. Why exactly are they an issue? Uh, hey, Mike. Uh, great. Thanks for having me on. Um, great question. So the main reason why bedbugs are such an issue um, is that they're very hardy. They're very hard to kill. Um, and the the methods in which they uh, were traditionally treated were, were actually kind of clawed back in the uh, early to mid-90s um, in terms of what pesticides companies were allowed to use and things like that. And so as a result of that, you have a very... Um, hardy insect that is uh, difficult to kill and not very many ways to kill it. Yeah, okay, that uh, that presents a problem. So basically it learned how to live through whatever we were trying to do to kill it? Well, we wouldn't really say that from a biology standpoint. Um, that would be talking about evolution like it's goal-directed, <laughs> which of course it's not. Um, what we would say more apt is that... Uh, Natural selection um, gave some bed bugs a, a better chance of surviving the pesticides that were that we were using, and and thus we had to come up with new methods and new treatments to actually treat them. You can you see this in uh, farm crops from time to time as well. Um, just for most of us, that they don't those uh, locusts and whatnot don't live in our homes. Okay, now if if we're to look at what a bed bug does, how does it? become problematic i mean it's not it's not transmitting some kind of flu virus to us or anything like that is it no there's no documented cases of uh disease being spread by bed bug bites but they are painful they are itchy and uh the rash that is left from a bed bug bite can become infected if you're scratching at it and things like that um so uh, the main reason why they're a problem is because they feed on humans they bite us they uh, bother us, and of course they they live in some of our um, in our beds, right? Where we don't want to have insects. I mean, it's one thing to have a spider in in the kitchen, or another thing to have a centipede in the basement. But when you have an insect living in your bed, it seems a little bit more personal. Well said. We're talking with Professor Mike Maris from Fanshawe College, and we're looking at bed bugs. We're not on the top ten, but if we go visiting someplace there's a chance that we could pick them up. How does that kind of transfer actually happen? Uh, so the most uh, common way that, that bed bugs are, are transferred is um, through staying in hotel rooms that are infested with bed, bed bugs. Um, so usually what will happen is rather than actually traveling on the person themselves, the insects will crawl into the luggage or um, something, books perhaps that the person's bringing. Usually they like to be in in enclosed spaces, so things, places where they have um, protection on many sides. Bed bugs are really flat, so they can they can fit into areas that you wouldn't expect. Um, but a lot of times, it'll be in the crease of 
of a suitcase or in the spine of a book or something like that. And so they're actually transmitted by just staying in a room and unfortunately one crawls into your luggage and you take it home with you. And does it take just one and then you have an issue? I mean, can these things produce all by themselves? Well, if you had a female um, that had um, been fertilized, then it could just take one. Usually, it would you would pick up more than one, okay. um, especially because at the uh, nymph stage, they're very small. Uh, most people wouldn't see them unless you went looking for them at that stage. So it's very easy to miss them in your in your luggage or you know along the the uh, crease of a suitcase. Of course. Okay. So what? precautions should we take if we are traveling to and let's grab the list again oh uh toronto uh scarborough hamilton sudbury st john's vancouver basically if we're traveling in canada what do we do what i personally do is i i like to have the the knowledge of of what i'm getting myself into when i'm staying at a hotel in in an area um i traveled to chicago a few years ago which was at that time the the highest um, infested infestation rate in uh, the United States. And I stayed at a hotel. I just went to them and said, you know, what kind of bed bug, bed bug program do you have here? The room I'm staying in is this number. One was last time it was checked. And luckily for me, having a background in pest control as well, I was able to do my own check. But just having that little bit of, of knowledge uh, kind of set my mind at ease. And so people tend to to shy away from bed bugs is not something we want to talk about. If you, the number of times I've been to a home and treated it for bed bugs and had the homeowner say, please don't tell my neighbor why you're here, <laughs> you know, it, it, ignoring the problem or not being educated about it is not going to make it go away. In fact, it's probably going to make you more likely to pick them up. So once you know um, what the chances are that there's a bed bug program in place at the hotel, you can do your own checks. Um, things that you would want to do are like you can take most, most, uh, hotels, you can take the bed board or sorry, the headboard of the bed off the wall. Mm -hmm. Usually bed bugs will live back there in the areas where that, that headboard's touching the wall. Um, you can lift the, uh, the mattress off. And if there are bed rails where the bed rails go into the wood that makes the bed frame again, tight areas, uh, close to the bed, Anything that's like that, sometimes even in, in the nightstands um, on the rails, they'll live in there, and you can just check for them yourself. If, if you see an insect that's the, the size of a, an apple seed and it's red or brown or sometimes translucent, you probably won't ask to have that identified. And you probably won't ask for a different room. I would ask for a different room if I found something like that, absolutely. Um, other tips that you can use are uh, keep your keep your luggage in. Uh, I keep mine in the bathtub. Really? <laughs> yeah, just to keep it away from the bed a little bit. Um, bed bugs don't tend to stray all that far from the bed, um, so keeping it in the in the washroom or in something like the the bathtub. You know, it, in my mind, at least, I think if a bed bug were to walk into the bathtub, I might have a chance of seeing that against the usual white color of the, the bathtub itself. Isn't that a great tip? Because typically it's hard to find that pressure against your body that some insects like in the bathtub. There's nothing to kind of fit into, is there? Yeah, exactly. So just little things like that. Once you understand how an insect 
lives and and where it likes to live and how it likes to travel then you can just use common sense to figure out most of the ways to protect yourself professor mike maris from fanshawe college joining us professor maris has all kinds of experience in pest control and is helping us to understand how we either combat bed bugs or avoid picking them up altogether now if you do happen to pick them up if you see them in your home or if you see the bites on your body are the bites going to be in any particular part of your body or are they just like human skin for everyone, it's different, um, and some people actually don't react to the bites. It's it's I it's not the exact same as as mosquito bite, but you know how you have friends who are anecdotally more tasty to mosquitoes than others. Mm-hmm. It applies for bed bugs. So some people don't react to the bites um, usually, and you should have them diagnosed by a doctor. Um, but usually, they'll be in the shape um, that the the bed sheet actually makes on your body. So if it's in a straight line, usually the bed bug will crawl to the edge of the sheet, bite, then go back in, and then move down a little bit, bite again. Um, so I, I would I would stay away from uh, people diagnosing their own skin irritations as bed bug bites. Um, but usually, you know, if if there's something going on, uh, you, you want to get it taken care of by a a pest control professional when it comes to bed bugs. And unfortunately, that's usually not cheap. Uh, one thing that you mentioned off the top was that uh, many municipalities are, are spending millions of dollars to eradicate this problem. And in my mind, that's almost a good thing. Um, a lot of the areas that are being hit by uh, large amounts of bed bugs, they have pest control companies that, uh, and I'm trying to say this nicely, they, they prefer you offer the cheapest option as opposed to the most effective option. Gotcha. Uh, what I've found in London is that most of the pest control companies are more concerned with eradicating the issue, even if that's going to cost a little bit more. The other part of that is education. And I know that the health unit and London, London Middlesex Housing Corporation and many of the pest control companies in the London area all are offering education on bed bugs. And of course, education costs money as well. But at the same time, if we're looking at eradicating it, could we ever see a day when we don't find continuous news reports of bed bugs being an issue? Or is this something that kind of gets out of hand because nobody's eradicating it, they're just kind of treating it? Well, you know, to, to fully get rid of bed bugs, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, just the, the, the way that we live now where so many people live in such confined areas and and almost the taboo behind bed bugs. a lot of people will live with it for a long time before they'll admit to themselves that, yes, they're in fact dealing with a bed bug infestation. In that amount of time, they've probably spread it to a couple different areas as well. Um, so completely eradicating bed bugs probably won't ever happen. Um, as far as the, if we're going to stop hearing about it from the news, well, you know, things that scare us, they end up on the news. <laughs> and, well, kind of explains why we're talking about it right now. Professor Maris, thank you so much for all your help today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take care. Take care. <laughs> it's Professor Mike Maris from Fanshawe College. But it's true. You don't want to bring these things home. And I think you know, Professor Maris made a great point. If you're looking at companies that just want to treat things, hoping, well, maybe they'll come back and we'll get to do this all over again.
And you're dealing with companies that want to say, no, we're going to do this right the first time. We're going to take care of you. And he points to London because he has a lot of experience in a number of spots as being a place that does it right. And then we're not on the top 10 list. Uh, That's good. That's good. So we're in a good place. We just don't want to bring them home. So when you walk into the hotel room, don't put the luggage on the bed. Then go out for dinner. Don't turn off the lights and make it nice and insect-friendly. Look at what Professor Maris pointed out. It puts his luggage in the tub. That's not a bad idea. A lot of insects like pressure on their body from all sides. They wouldn't do all that well in you know, a, a nice wide-open king. They need to find little crevices and stuff that they can sleep in and hang out in. So that's what you want to avoid. You want to do those bed checks. You seriously do. And as Professor Maris pointed to, you want to make sure you ask, hey, does your hotel have a bed bug program? Before we close out, Ray, you had a bed bug experience? What was that? I've I've had them too, Mike, and... uh... They're pretty itchy, and when Georgina and I were living together, uh, I just got a brand-new mattress and everything from the mattress. People down at the East End, second-hand furniture store, and now I'll know better not to go back and buy used second-hand stuff anymore. Uh, and you figure so that's where that. they came from. Hey, yeah, Ray, thanks for that. And there's other people picking up garbage outside, outside and bringing it in. That's how we're getting them, too. Yeah, that's that's a way, too. Ray, you have an excellent day. Really appreciate that. Um, when they get in, as Professor Maris pointed to, sometimes you got to call the professionals. In fact, most times in this case, you got to call the professionals to get rid of them. So do those checks. Try not to bring them home, especially if you're heading to any of those top tens. And I mean, these are cities that you want to visit. These are cities that around here you're going to visit every once in a while. Toronto, you'll be there. Hamilton, yeah, you'll be there. Scarborough, possibly. Vancouver, Halifax, St. John's, they were near the top of the list. Let's take a final break, and we'll close out the show next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Hey, if you just recently watched Bird Box and you were going to do the bird brain thing of blindfolding yourself while performing household activities or like this moron, driving a vehicle... You're not going to be able to post it to YouTube, or if you do, it'll get taken down. YouTube is finally trying to, as they say, prevent otherwise bright people from doing dangerous things. They're now owned by Google. Isn't that nice? Google comes and buys you out. And they're cracking down on things that are done that kind of come with a, hey, watch this. So don't even bother doing them in the first place. They'll take them down. You'll never get millions of views. You won't make money off it. Thank you, YouTube. That is a job well done. News is coming up next with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick. Thank you to Andrew Graham for all of his help. My name is Mike Stubbs. London Live brought to you by our friends at Winmar, your restoration specialist. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.